comes from the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 30, to chapter 23, verse 35. Would you please stand together for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part, of the, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in, a, in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For, you have, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Then it was day. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath and to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you... Along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of this of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him. And brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. Who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, 
Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to, this, to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to, their, to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, I pray for those among us who suffer, especially today. They may not pass through the hands of persecutors or of the authorities, but they may be in the hands of doctors and nurses, or they may be making constant hospital visits. They may be suffering silently with depression. Whatever our suffering is, whatever our hurts are, Lord, would you use your word this morning to open our ears to your goodness and wisdom? Lord, would you use your word to heal our wounds and help us to trust in you? It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I'm from Kansas, and the thing I here the most often when someone meets me for the first time and here's that I'm from Kansas is they want to know if I've seen Dorothy and Toto. And, uh, you know, I've been here now for about three years almost. And I don't think I've ever used the Wizard of Oz as a, as a uh, illustration. So I'm going to do that this morning just to sort of get it out of the way. It needs to happen eventually. And uh, I don't remember how old I was when I saw the Wizard of Oz, but I was little. I know that. And uh, I remember watching the movie, and I do remember the very first time I watched it. After you've seen The Wizard of Oz maybe a dozen times, it starts to lose its impact a little bit. But I remember the first time seeing the movie, and there is that moment. By the way, it's like 70 years old, so I'm allowed to spoil it if you haven't seen The Wizard of Oz. But that moment when Toto pulls back the curtain, and you have up to this point seen this towering, terrifying figure of the wizard. He's been built up over the course of the whole story. And then you just see it's just a man. It's just a man standing behind the curtain. And it's this shocking moment. If if you're not expecting that, you think this is some all-powerful wizard who's going to be able to save the day. And when you look behind the curtain, you find out what the reality is. Now, today's passage isn't, uh, uh, we don't find out that God is a man hiding behind a curtain. That's not at all why I mentioned this, but... What this passage does do this morning is it gives Paul a glimpse behind the curtain of God's providence and behind the curtain of God's purpose. Because so often we go through things we never know what God's up to. And this is one of those rare moments 
this morning where Paul sees one thing in his life. He sees suffering. He sees persecution. He sees trouble, imprisonment, discouragement, you name it. And then God comes to him and he comforts Paul and he comforts him with the knowledge of what he's really doing. He lets him see behind the curtain just enough for him to know, yes, I am still in control, even as this place is in utter chaos. Yes, as you're passing through all these different hands. And so this morning's passage has three main events, but all of them are sort of united by this one single central verse. Because the center of all of God's activity in this passage this morning is in verse 11. Because in this painful moment, God appears to Paul and he comforts Paul and he says with a promise, he says, he says, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so this is God's way of pulling back the curtain for Paul, showing Paul why and how all the gears are turning the way that they are. And which of us hasn't had the gears of our lives turning and we have found ourselves wondering, why are you doing it this way, God? What are you doing here? What is your purpose here? Why is my life in chaos right now? And we don't usually get to look behind. We don't usually get a statement of purpose for the the things that are happening to us. And yet he does let Paul know, know here. He gives him this promise that whatever happens to him here, this isn't the end. He's going to survive. He's going to make it to Rome. And not only that, but Paul, God tells Paul, the injustices that you're about to go through come from my hand, even though they come from all these other hands as well. And so very briefly this morning, I want to look at the different hands that Paul finds himself in. And then I want us to return to the central passage here and the promise that God makes to Paul. And so the three points this morning are the hands of Caiaphas, the hands of the, the sorry, the hands of the council, the hands of conspirators, and the hands of Claudius. The hands of the council, the hands of conspirators, and the hands of Claudius. So first this morning, Paul finds himself in the hands of the council. You'll remember that Paul was arrested by the soldiers, partly for his own protection. He gave a speech in defense of himself. He got cut off about halfway through. The people in the crowd tried to kill him. Once things were calmed down a bit, this morning Paul is brought before the Jewish high council. They're called the Sanhedrin. This would be the Jewish equivalent, the ancient Israelite equivalent of the Supreme Court. And he makes his arguments, in a sense, before the Supreme Court. And this is an interesting group because just like our own Supreme Court in the United States, you have sort of a division. You sort of have a 50-50 split. Well, the Sanhedrin is a lot like that. They, they can't agree on very big issues. They don't agree on the afterlife. They don't agree on the existence of angels. They don't agree on the resurrection. So the differences between this group are really big. And Paul begins speaking to them and telling them that he has always lived his life with a good conscience. And he doesn't get very far because Ananias commands him to be struck on the mouth in violation of Deuteronomy 25.2. That verse says that a guilty person should only be beaten after they've been convicted of a crime. 
And of course, they haven't even figured out if Paul has committed a crime yet, and, that, and yet they're already commanding Paul to be struck. Now, as soon as this happens, of course, you, hopefully your, your defensiveness comes up and you just think, why would you do that to Paul? And yet Paul is more than capable of defending himself. I love his response. It's angry, a little bit bitter. He's just been punched in the face, which, by the way, I never respond well to that. I don't know about the rest of you. Uh, but when he speaks, true words of judgment come out of his mouth. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And it's not sinful. Every word of it's true. Every word of it's true. And then he points out the hypocrisy of unjustly striking Paul and yet trying to judge Paul according to the same law that he just broke. So the response he receives is information he didn't have before. He did not know that the man that commanded him struck was the high priest. How does Paul respond to that? Paul responds by immediately saying he did not know this man was the priest. But notice this. I think this is so interesting. He doesn't actually apologize. He doesn't actually take back what he said. Everything he said was still true. It was deserved. What he says is he would have shown more respect if he had known this man was the high priest. So don't take this as an apology here. And yet he still deserves respect. And I think it's a a reminder that even an evil ruler who abuses his position, uh, who is unjust, still deserves the respect that his position commands. And we need to be reminded of that because we surely know unjust rulers We surely watch the news. We see news of unjust rulers, not only in our own land, but all over the world. And here's a moment to contrast these two men. Think about this. You have Paul standing here. You have Ananias standing here. What does Ananias do? He intentionally violates Deuteronomy 25.2. He intentionally strikes this man who has not been judged guilty. And he is not sorry in the least bit. And then you have Paul over here who accidentally violates Exodus 22-28, and he immediately admits that his lack of respect was wrong. He says, I should have been more respectful. Think about these two figures. He intentionally breaks the law, not a word. He unintentionally breaks the law, and he recognizes it immediately. How quick are we to admit when we're wrong? How quick are you when somebody confronts you with something that you've done wrong, even though they did worse, even though they did something far more offensive, something far more upsetting. They should be the ones getting in trouble, but yet you've broken this small law that you know you shouldn't have done, something. They wronged you, so you did a little bitter response. Are you willing to confess the little thing that you did, even though they did something bigger? How quick we are to admit when we're wrong says something about the state of our own heart. Because Paul knows himself. And Paul is willing to submit to God's law even when it stops him dead in his tracks. And what I want to say is this. Christian, if someone confronts you with sin, fold. Fold. Don't stand your ground. Don't defend yourself. Don't come up with every justification that you could possibly think of. Just admit it. God is right And I am wrong. If there is to be peace in the body of Christ, we have to be people who admit when we are wrong. We must be. 
We must be. And we have to have a reputation for that. So that when we do stand our ground, people don't go, oh, he's just doing that because he's stubborn and he always stands his ground. We need to be people who are known for folding when we're wrong. Now, Paul does something else that demonstrates very deep wisdom here because he he enters this room. He realizes immediately this is a split room. And he immediately puts his finger on the tender spot, the tender spot in this room. The thing that there is an unspoken rule that we are not to talk about is the resurrection. And that's exactly what he brings up. He's been a Pharisee. He knows about the divide between Pharisees and Sadducees. He knows the Sadducees are practically atheists for all intents and purposes. And he says to them, I got arrested because I'm with the Pharisees. Talks to one side of the room. I'm on your team. What has he got now? Now he's got a ready-built coalition ready to defend him. They haven't even heard all the details yet. But one thing is for sure, people start standing up and saying, I think this man is innocent. Nothing says partisanship quite like not really looking at the facts of the case and exonerating someone. That's what they do. They look at Paul and they say, hey, I, I don't really know what this guy did, but he's with me. And I think he's all right. And that's exactly what happens here. The Pharisees on one side of the room, they're with Paul. Oh boy, this is a partisan dispute. And it creates a new clamor. Some of these people say he's innocent. Some of them say he's guilty. Things get violent. The text actually says they're afraid Paul would get torn to pieces. So Jesus talked about moments like this before in in the gospel of Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Already very resonant with what's happened. But then he goes on. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of the father speaking through you. Paul exemplifies this principle here. This whole situation Paul's experiencing doesn't surprise Jesus. In fact, Jesus predicted this sort of thing would happen. But Paul lives out what Jesus says when he says, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. See, Paul shows incredible wisdom in this situation because he uses these very real divisions between his enemies to create a ready-made coalition of partners who get behind him and defend him, even if maybe... They would hate him if they got to know him just a little bit better. Paul knows these people. And one of the things it shows us is that partisanship was not invented in the 21st century. It is as old as humanity. We break off into parties. We, we find a way to make it us versus them. We basically decide we're never going to like those other guys. We'd rather die than let them have their way. Even if we do want the same things and just disagree on how to do it. And Paul uses that human tendency toward partisanship here for his advantage. This is very shrewd and and what Paul what Paul does here. Wisdom in conflict often involves realizing 
who we're dealing with. And that's what Paul does. He realizes what's going on and he acts with wisdom. <clears throat> now, it's, a, it's difficult to imagine this, but even the arrest of Paul and the striking of Paul and the chastening of Paul here for talking back to the high priest, all of these things take place within the good and gracious power and plan of God. So he moves from the hands of the council, second this morning, into the hands of the conspirators. There is a conspiracy to have Paul killed because some of these people think that they won't be able to eliminate him through legal means. This is an old theme. This is how Jesus was killed. We can't find a legal way to kill this man. So let's cook up a case. But they don't do that here. Instead, they take a vow. We're not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. And so that's bad, right? Because you don't want hangry people coming after you. And that's what Paul has. He's being pursued by hangry people, not just people. Uh, and they, they inform the religious authorities. And they tell them, this is what we're going to do. And the authorities are like, hey, you guys are in beast mode right now. You all need to have a burger from, from Arby's, but that's not happening until you've taken care of Paul. So we're not going to get in your way. And the story of Paul likely would have ended here, except for the plan of God. You see, there's this young man, and this young man hears their plan. He hears the specific ambush site is chosen. And what the conspirators don't know is, this is Paul's nephew. Now, at this point, as you're reading, you're saying, Paul has a nephew. And then you think, Paul has a sister. So these are new characters in the story. This is our first time learning about Paul's family members. So he has a sister, she has a son, and God uses this kid. I like to imagine that he's a kid. He could be a grown-up. But God uses this kid who's just in the right place at the right time. And because he's there, he uses this person to save Paul's neck. Paul didn't even know it, but he was in the hands of these conspirators. Their plan was well underway. And yet what happened? How did God intend to get Paul to Rome? How does he do it? The first way he allows it is by allowing the conspiracy to fester, allowing the conspiracy to grow. There needs to be something that involves Paul being chased out of there. And for that to happen, there needs to be this conspiracy. And so we don't even realize it as readers. And yet it's under the plan of God that all of these people are saying, I want Paul dead. And if you could be in that planning room and maybe you're on the opposite side of things, you'd think, where is God? When his servants being threatened and people are planning to kill him. And yet God's answer in this moment would truthfully be, I am right here. This is how it happens. And then how does God get Paul to Rome? Well, not only does he allow this conspiracy to fester, but he lets this kid overhear someone who's flapping his gums just a little too loudly. The way that God rescues his people often seems coincidental. Um, and you, know, you might even say fortuitous. He does it with things that seem like accidents. I remember listening to a journalist talk about September 11th, 2001. She was in New York City. She had a snafu with a nanny. Couldn't get her nanny to her house fast enough for her to be able to make it to the World Trade Center. And she arrived at the World Trade Center a few minutes too late. 
And if she had arrived there on time, if she had arrived there as planned, she would have been in those buildings when they were struck by the planes. And yet the whole way you could imagine how angry she must have been that her nanny was late, that she's going to be late for work, that her whole plan is off the rails, that her whole day isn't going the way it's supposed to. And yet she did not know it, but God was looking out for her. He was delivering her and she didn't even know it. Because the plan of God and the providence of God often looks like annoyances and things that we wish were working out our way. And her remark was, if things had gone according to plan, I wouldn't be here now. So what so often feels like an accident is really the providence of God. And yet God already tells Paul what he's going to do before this young man even heard the plan. And that means... You and I may may, may, may have strange and unexpected things happen in our lives. Things that were not part of the life plan we had written down for ourselves. I don't know how much your life looks like you had planned it to look like 10 years ago. If you ask yourself 10 years ago, what what is my life supposed to look like? I'm guessing for most, most of us, or at least some of us, our life doesn't look the way that we would have expected it to 10 years ago. But we should never think that the things that have happened to bring us to this moment are outside the providence of God. And the flip side of that is that if we find ourselves in a situation we wish things could be different, we should remember that God could always, if he willed, cause an accident, prevent an accident, cause a coincidence, coincidence, uh, prevent a coincidence to happen. He can do whatever is best for us. And the truth is, sometimes the coincidence that we want never takes place. Sometimes the accident that we want and that we think needs to happen doesn't take place. And it's in those moments we have to content ourselves with the knowledge that he doesn't work the way we prefer. He doesn't work the way that we think is best. Our God does what he knows is best and what he knows we need most. Even if that means... What looks like inaction when we wish and pray that he would act. Which of us hasn't had events in our life that we wish had gone differently? A job interview that we totally botched. We gave a bad answer. We didn't get the job. Um, A fractured relationship where we screwed up and we handled it real badly and there's no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. A sickness that was misdiagnosed. A car accident that left us with lifelong injuries and constant pain. Paul is in the middle of one of those moments that if you gave him a choice right then and there, he would have said, let me go. And yet he's right where God wants him because God is as present and good in Paul's life now as he was when Paul was at the height of his ministerial accomplishments Planting churches, preaching sermons, seeing people come to Christ, moving from one city to the next, seeing the labor of his hands accomplish things. And yet God is just as real and just as present in his life as he's being held in this prison. And that promise is for you, too, because he's he's taking Paul to Rome. This is how he's doing it. And he's he's taking you somewhere, too. He's doing something with you, even even in your circumstances. Even if the road is rocky and painful, like it is for Paul. But see, unlike Paul, 
You don't know the destination necessarily. Paul knows that it's Rome. But you do know that he's good. And you do know that whatever it is, whatever is best, and whatever you need most is the thing God is going to do for you. So Christian, let's ask God to give us contentment with his providence, even if we find ourselves in the hands of conspirators like Paul does. As a result of this conspiracy, Paul is finally, our third point, passed into the hands of Claudius Lysias. Claudius is told these plans about Paul, and so he acts quickly. He gathers a force of 470 soldiers. He sends them on a 70-mile journey to Caesarea. He orders them to leave under cover of night, so they leave around 9 p.m. in the evening. In other words, he takes the threat seriously. He doesn't just look at it as some small thing that he doesn't need to worry about. The road was already a dangerous one, doubly so because they're traveling at night, doubly so even more because of the men who have vowed to kill Paul. You can imagine the tension as they're riding in the darkness, as they look around and think about all the sounds that they're hearing. What is that sound over there? Is there someone hiding in the bushes? Is there going to be an assault on us as we're traveling? But because of the danger, Paul's being transferred into the custody of the governor. His name is Felix. We'll meet him next week. He's quite a character. But Luke summarizes the letter that Claudius sends to Felix. And it contains some inaccuracies uh, and even omits important information. One of the interesting things about the letter is it sort of makes it sound like Claudius rescued Paul because he was a Roman citizen. And in actuality, he only accidentally found out he was a Roman citizen. And the letter leaves out the fact, very conveniently, that Claudius's plan A was to torture him for information. Doesn't quite mention that. So he makes it sound like he's a rescuer of Paul when, in fact, he was planning to torture him. But one important thing the letter says that is so accurate is he says, Paul appears to be innocent of anything demanding the death penalty. And see, it's, it's in moments like this in Acts where we have to remember the rule of law is a blessing. An anarchist society without laws or rulers is not a blessing. It is a curse. That's why Paul tells us to pray for rulers and pray for those in authority that we can live peaceful, quiet lives, godly in every way. This man may be fueled by ambition and selfishness, but he is still used by the hand of God to move Paul one step closer to Rome. Just think, think about this. Think of the instruments that God has used to accomplish his purpose. They've been so unlikely. A room full of angry Pharisees and Sadducees. A young man in the right place at the right time. An opportunistic, ambitious tribune. Sensible enough to listen to a warning. And in the middle of all these things, in the midst of Paul being passed through all these hands first from Ananias, then narrowly escaping the hands of the conspirators and finally ending up in the hands of Claudius. In the middle of all these things, in verse 11, God spoke to Paul. And he told him something that is central to everything happening here because what he tells Paul is, at every moment, he has been in the hands of Christ. If you look at verse 11. Paul has just been taken away by the soldiers. He's been imprisoned in the barracks. And in this dark moment, in the midst of all this trouble, the text says, the Lord stood by him. 
The Lord stood by him. The idea here is that Paul is in the middle of his trials and he doesn't survive because he has willpower. He doesn't make it through all of this because he's just such a hardy, toughened man. He survives because of God's presence. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He's near. I have, I've spoken with Christians who have been in deeply trying circumstances. And the thing that I've come away being persuaded by is they have frequently said things to me like this. I was at the very bottom. And in that moment, I knew God's presence. One person told me it was like she was experiencing the embrace of God. Paul knows that in a sense here because in this dark moment, the text says God was with Paul. And I want to remind you of what God does here because he gives, gives Paul his presence, but he also tells him, I'm taking you to Rome. I'm doing this my way. You will survive this. This isn't the end for you. So God makes a promise to Paul, and I want you to know that when the dark hour comes for you, when the trouble happens, when the hospital stay takes place, when you lose your job, when persecution comes your way, when the depression descends, whatever it is, I want you to know that just like Paul had the promises of God here to carry him and hold him up, you have his promises too. God doesn't give us oracles from heaven or angelic appearances to confirm these things. Instead, he, he gives us his word and he promises us these various things. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will uphold you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I'm working all of this for your ultimate good. I'm doing what I know is best for you, even if that means going through what you think is torture. And it might feel like that. Definitely feels like that for Paul. And yet he also promises you, he says, I love you like a father loves his child. And he may not normally give us angels or audible messages, but, and Calvin makes this point, he says, God loves us so much that if that's what we truly needed in that moment, he would do it. He will give us whatever we really need. And you may never have an experience like Paul here. In fact, I feel confident saying most of us won't. Most of us or, or all of us may never experience that. And yet the answer is, if we don't, he knows we don't really need it. We need to content ourselves with the promises of God's word because his promises are really big enough and he is really good enough. Paul is kept going by the promises of God and so should we. And not because of the word spoken, but because of the one who spoke it. We can trust him. We can believe him. We can believe his word. Whoever's hand we happen to be in, whether it's the doctors and nurses, whether it's the hand of our enemies, whether we're in the grip of depression, wherever we find ourselves, the guarantee is that like Paul this morning, we are really and ultimately in the hand of a good and wise God who loves us. And as his children, he is always working everything we endure for our ultimate good. He loves us. Lord, it doesn't come naturally for us to trust. 
by nature we're distrustful. By nature we're fearful. By nature we think of ourselves and take our eyes off of you. That is our default. But would you remind us this morning that your sovereignty and your wisdom and your goodness mean that you are for us, not against us. That you can be trusted with our soul, our life, our all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.